My aim in this presentation is to think roads and borders together, and specifically to ask how attending to the material politics of road construction can help us to understand the dynamics of bordering in contemporary Central Asia. This is part of a larger project on which I'm working with colleagues in Kyrgyzstan on the relationship between infrastructure and dynamics of borderland conviviality and contention. At first sight, borders and roads seem rather different kinds of things, materialising different, perhaps even contradictory political visions. Roads are paradigmatically infrastructures of extension and connection. They draw people and places together. In popular imagination, roads stretch off into an unmarked distance. They condense promises of speed, of connectivity, of an integrated modernity. As Dalakolo and Harvey note, they, quote, elicit powerful temporal imaginaries, holding out the promise or threat of future connectivity, while also articulating political and material histories that often render these out otherwise mundane spaces so controversial. Borders, in official discourse at least, would seem to promise something rather different. Protection, perhaps, security, territorial integrity. If the popular imagination of a road draws our line of sight towards a distant horizon, public and academic portrayals alike often focus on borders' intrusive three-dimensional materiality. Borders would seem to block. They extend upwards and often downwards too in barbed wire, bricks, metal sheeting. They cut our visual horizon and in cutting it imply a break upon freedom, extension, movement. Here I want to ask how an ethnography of road building in a region marked by pockets of land that, is, that are officially undetermined in the Russian officialese that, that is written about in this region, or disputed, between neighbouring states, <coughs> how a study of road building in such regions might complicate our understanding of borders and border work in Central Asia. I seek to draw out two arguments. The first concerning the way that roads and other infrastructures which are celebrated as paradigmatically connective and integrative, can separate as well as connect. The second concerning the need within border theory to attend to the empirical diversity of borders, including non-contiguous and undemarcated ones. To develop these arguments, I draw on research over several years, and most recently in August 2013, in the long, narrow valley of the Isfara River, um, seen here in this work, in late summer, um, which intersects Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan at the southern perimeter of Central Asia's Sugandi Valley. This isn't a region that is necessarily on everybody's mental map, so I'll, I've got a few maps with me. So if this is the Fugana Valley, which is transected by Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, the region that I'm talking about here is, is this little valley. So the square um, here is, is large. I'm going to talk more about the, the enclaves that we see here later. But this is the general um, region that I'm talking about, uh, uh, the border area here between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And I've got a, a still more detailed map here. Um, and I'm going to be talking about two uh, new detour roads, bypass roads. Um, and in one case, the attempted building of a bypass road that was actually stalled. Um, which the, the first of which is shown here in red, and the second of which um, that hasn't been built, um, its building was stalled, starting out here and bypassing um, an enclave um, of Tajikistan into the mountains. These roads would enable citizens of Kyrgyzstan, resident in border villages, to reach their district centre of Batken over here, 
um, without having to cross, without having to traverse the territory of Tajikistan. Both projects proved contentious. The second of them violently halted by a group of young men from Varukh, the village community that would be bypassed by the second of these roads earlier this year. This was followed by weeks of tension and mutual prohibitions on non-citizens trading in the region's border. <coughs> to understand local contention over these road-building initiatives, I argue, we need to understand how they serve to materialize a de facto border in a region of disputed territoriality, and how in doing so they've undermined habitual practices of cross-border conviviality, or in um, local uh, terminology, unkamak. Let me start, though, with roads. In that Pen region in the far, far southwest of Kyrgyzstan, improved roads, roads that are wide, covered in asphalt, um, well-policed, open year-round, protected from mudslides and rockfall in this largely mountainous country, are often taken as key material indices of a functioning, modern, territorially integral state. When I returned to Bat Kent Town in the summer of 2013 after a three-year absence and asked the youngest son in my host family, Bayram, about what the significant changes were in town, his first comment was, we've got asphalt now right up to the university. Until, re until recently in this border region, asphalt was largely the preserve of highways that bypassed Batken region altogether in neighbouring Uzbekistan. Roads, like other infrastructures, mediate exchange over distance. They're complex technical systems that elicit new temporal and spatial practices. But as recent work on the anthropology of infrastructure has highlighted, roads are also more than this. As Larkin puts it, infrastructural systems also merge out of and store within them forms of desire and fantasy and can take on fetish-like aspects that sometimes can be wholly autonomous from their technical function. In Peru, Penny Harvey and Hannah Knox speak of new roads linking the Amazon interior with the coast as enchanted, drawing on Jane Bennett's discussion of vibrant matter to capture, quote, the more generally visceral, affective form of relating to that which is sidelined or cast out of formalised, rationalised depictions of material and social phenomena. Roads enchant through promises of speed, of political connectivity, of economic integration, they argue. On the one hand, as well as technical expertise, their appearance also requires, quote, a force of social and political will which is able to generate and foster the belief that these technologies have a capacity to transform the spaces through which they will pass. On the other, roads enchant through the kinds of everyday engagements that they elicit. It's through an articulation with the lived material encounters of stasis, rupture and blockage, they argue, that infrastructural promises become reinvigorated and recast. <coughs> what I find helpful here is the way in which this, this approach situates enchantment not so much in the fulfilment of what is promised, a road actually does get built, new forms of connection indeed come to materialise, as in the way that infrastructure seem to condense possibility and potential. They gesture to something beyond themselves. They remind us of the way politics is articulated in the mundane and sometimes invisible infrastructures of daily life. And the current discussion over energy pricing in Britain, I think, is another moment when we're suddenly made acutely aware of, of how infrastructures uh, how, how, how politics is kind of contained within infrastructural forms and, and in some cases... Uh, 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 limited by them. Here, though, I'm interested in how enchantment might be entangled with other, more ambivalent, affective registers. One person's promise of connectivity, <coughs> after all, can be another's prospect of entrapment. <coughs> Moreover, roads enchant in different ways. 
they have different kinds of political effects. In contemporary Kyrgyzstan, I suggest, the bypass or detour road built to enable the residents of border villages to reach their administrative and district centres without traversing the territory of the neighbouring state hold out particular importance in the imagination of territorial integrity and coherent statehood, particularly for a country that is both landlocked and with a highly dependent road network. During Soviet times, after all, reaching the north of the country from the south necessarily entailed driving along the highways of, neighboring, of the neighbouring Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic. And many of Kyrgyzstan's own roads remain um, extremely perilous. These are some um, running up into the mountains um, in that Ken region. Yeah. Referred to generically in literary Kyrgyz as literally roads that surmount, that overpass, these roads are more often referred to locally as abyezd joldor, using the Russian word for detour or bypass. Along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border that I consider here, the new bypasses that had been built were generally just referred to as the Qatai Joldor, the Chinese roads, a reference to the Chinese construction workers commissioned to build them. Or sometimes, and more recently, Qurgaz Joldor, Kyrgyz roads. Few disputed in Batken that these roads were built of and for the Kyrgyz, linking Kyrgyz-majority villages in Kyrgyzstan to the district centre of Batken. When work began on the first section of a road that would bypass Tajikistan near the village of Chaku in 2008, <coughs> the then Prime Minister Igor Chudinov claimed that the new bypass would turn Kyrgyzstan from a country of dead ends into a country of transits. The regional governor of Batken, Sultan Ajigidov, hailed the new road being built around the south of um, uh, Chaku. Um, as finally giving Batken people the sweet taste of independence. I quote, on the territory of, Kir of the Oblast of Batken region, there are five enclaves, he said, and all communication goes precisely through these enclaves. To tell you the truth, it's precisely for this reason that already now 15 years, the local population has not yet experienced the taste of real freedom, the taste of independence. Such problems can be resolved in one way only we must build new detour roads around these enclaves, end of quote. At the 2013 Independence Day celebration that took place in the Batken Town Stadium this August, infrastructural promise was on display in the form of huge posters paraded on the side of slowly circulating minivans showing the future abundance that would be enabled by new technologies and the building of new dams. The local roads administration was paraded alongside schoolgirls in national dress with signs reminding onlookers that, quote, guarding independence begins with the development of roads. That's what's written here in, in this sign in, in Kyrgyz. The water administration was there too, showing how the building of a new canal would allow for the wholesale irrigation of hundreds of hectares of previously barren land. Nor is this discourse entirely new. Historically, the overcoming of roadlessness, bizdarogia, and the building of new irrigation systems had been integral to the transformation of space into territory, as well as to experiential incorporation within a Soviet polity for generations of Central Asian men and women. The other side of this enchantment, though, or perhaps indeed part of the promise of bypass roads in a context of borders that are portrayed as excessively porous, is their capacity to cut relations, to separate at the same time as they connect, by channeling new routes through the landscape and defining boundaries of inclusion. 
for back Ken region, which often figures in national discourse as a region condemned to isolation by its complex peninsula political geography and undemarcated borders, infrastructures are often the subject of intense public and domestic speculation. They allow things to connect, yes, but they can also allow the wrong things to get through. Drugs, militants, weapons. Moreover, as my interlocutors would often explain, road building is a paradigmatic space for siphoning off international funds. Conversations on journeys would often turn to who gives contracts to who, what depth of tarmac, tarmac gets laid or gets siphoned off, whether the width of the proposed road is identical to that specified in the protocol. During a journey on a stretch of the newly resurfaced highway linking Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan's capital, to the Chinese border this summer, the driver of the minibus in which I travelled read the already emergent pucks and dents in the new road as material proof of corruption and the more general failure of the government. Roads in Chant, I would suggest, in part because they point to and serve as material metaphors for sometimes murky sets of relations beyond themselves, administrative, financial, personal. You never quite know what is under the surface of a newly retarmac road. So what does all this have to do with our discussion of rebordering after socialism? The argument has been well, well made in political geography, anthropology and political science that global borders seem to be taking on an increasingly wall-like quality, cartographic lines condensed in an obdurate and often violent material form. They can tear, spike, puncture, even electrocute. They can block. They have a tendency to multiply. Consider the lovely graphic used as the poster for this series, which is up in the corner there. Um, or those that figure on the cover of recent books about international borders. There's good reason, of course, to focus on and critically interrogate the growing tendency for states to materialize borders in three dimensions with fences and walls. The Guardian recently ran a piece complete with captivating visuals on the new turn towards separation walls as a way of marking state space, estimating that 6,000 miles of such walling had been installed in the last decade. Geographer Stuart Eldon has recently reminded us of the need to take this physical extensiveness seriously for understanding contemporary governmentality. In contemporary geopolitics, he argues, securing the area he, uh, has now been replaced by securing the volume. We need to think in three dimensions rather than two, he suggests. And yet intending to concentrate in scholarship and practice on the monumental borders that tend to resemble walls we do ourselves an analytical service. How and whether and in what context borders materialize in barbed wire and checkpoints is an empirical question. And how a border functions when it is non-contiguous or its location disputed is comparatively little studied. The degree to which the US-Mexico hyperborder in particular has dominated border theory and border, and border imagery has left rural land borders in much of the global south borders that materialize only occasionally in the form of the roadside railway cabin or the figure of the lone conscript soldier, relatively less explored. We've tended to be concerned with borders visible and often visceral, visceral oppressive spatiality, but devoted less attention to their temporality, their capacity to, to erupt, to suddenly appear or indeed disappear. And yet for understanding the dynamics of rebordering after socialism, 
and particularly, I think, for the new international borders of Central Asia that were never intended to mark the borders of independent states. This empirical diversity in terms of what borders actually look like and how and when they become visible or violent deserves critical consideration. These irrigation canals, for instance, um, built in the 1970s, are locally understood to mark the boundary between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan near the village of Aksai um, on this side and the villages of Ushtabur um, and Hojailo on the right. This is the border post that occasionally interrupts the route west from Batken at the village of Samarkande. And this is the edge of the state between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan um, uh, on the, at the edge of the Baroque uh, enclave. What difference does it make for border theory if a border looks less like a wall than a water canal? Or even as here takes the form of a shop called Friendship, that's the, the, the dusty shop here, but is generally unmarked and unremarkable, but periodically comes to be surrounded by riot police and border guards, as occurred in April this year in an incident that I'll talk about later in the paper. How might we account for the capacity of borders to suddenly erupt? And how and when might roads, highways and other infrastructures come to stand in for border, performing the work of territorial and social inclusion, uh, social exclusion, less visibly than barbed wire and metal sheeting perhaps, but with no less salient effects. Here I want to suggest that along parts of the Kyrgyzstan-Tajikistan border, road building has come to serve as a form of de facto delimitation in the absence of juridical agreements between the two neighbouring states about where the line of the border actually lies. New bypass roads, celebrated as fostering connectivity and transport independence, transport in political speeches and policy documents, have in fact, I seek to show, had highly contradictory consequences and have served to exacerbate existing inter-ethnic antagonisms in this region by undermining spaces of habitual cross-border conviviality, such as markets, bus stops, water pumps, and crucially, the buses and minivans, the marshrutki, of a once integrated public transport system. To situate this story, I want to dig a little into the Soviet history of border drawing and redrawing in this area, to suggest that rebordering here is not a uniquely post-socialist process. In this region, borders have never really stayed still, and historical memory of lands that were felt to have been given away by well-intentioned but deluded party officials or out of cowardice in the face of a Soviet bureaucracy, often animate daily conversation. Consider, for instance, the argument made by Khalil, the head of Hojailo village, in an interview for a Tajik newspaper, recalling the land exchanges that had led to a diminution of his village's registered lands. And I quote here, the biggest problem we face today is the lack of irrigated land and the absence of pastures. The last time land was swapped between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan was in 1989. Then the leaders of the commission from among the rayon and oblast level officers, that's to say the district and regional officers, those who were supposed to be representing our republic didn't act fairly. They put together a map according to which all the lands that are beyond the reach of the last house would be considered Kyrgyz, as a result of which all four mountains surrounding our village have gone to our neighbors. Charku has been left without mountains. Even the house in which I live at one time used to be considered right in the centre of Hojailo neighbourhood. And now it's right on the edge of it, 20 metres further, and you are already inside the territory of Kyrgyzstan. As the map of this region suggests, and I'll bring it up again here, this is a region of complex political geography. 
including two of the world's largest sovereign enclaves, or exclaves, depending on whose perspective you're looking at it from. Um, Varuk, here in the Isfara Valley, with a population of close to 40,000 people, and part of Tajikistan's Sogd Oblast, and here, um, Soh, which is part of Uzbekistan's Fagana Oblast. The emergence of these enclaves as enclaves reveals a great deal about the history of territory in the post-war Soviet Union. The emphasis on economic interdependence between constituent union republics within the Soviet Union, and in this region specifically, the overriding imperative to maximise cotton and tobacco production on an industrial scale. The initial inter-republican borders between what are today independent Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, but which were then constituent Soviet republic, would, republics, were drawn up between 1924 and 1927 as part of the so-called national territorial delimitation of Central Asia. Soviet officials at that time were seeking to create explicitly proto-national republics in the na nascent Soviet Union, defined in each case by the majority ethnic population. But they were also trying to create economically viable republics in which sources of mountainous irrigation remained connected to the fertile flatlands that were used to grow cotton, tobacco, vegetables and other commodities for export. Early Soviet maps indicate today's Soch and Varuk enclaves to be territorially contiguous with the Uzbek Soviet Socialist Republic. The Tajik Soviet Republic contained auto gained autonomous state status slightly later. So this is, um, what I'm going to show you is an extract from a 1928 Soviet atlas on a larger scale. But you can see here that what are today um, ge geographical uh, enclaves were territorially contiguous with um, the Uzbek Soviet Republic. Early Soviet maps then indicate today's Soch and Varuk enclaves to be contiguous. Um, and the story of so socio-spatial transformation that turned uh, these, these regions into enclaves is bound up with a longer history of collectivization, the transformation of previously unirrigated hillside into regions of intense cultivation through the building of new water channels and pump stations, um, as well as a huge new reservoir to irrigate Batken and the large-scale resettlement of mountain populations who are considered too scattered to be economically productive, and their movement into so-called planned villages, Planowe-Syola, in the lowlands. Aksai is one of these villages, and Batken, which you can see here, it's sort of grid-like form, is another of these. So these were villages that were built to re relocate populations um, uh, previously living in the mountains. And these villages were often built um, on the stretches of land that had, had, had previously been part of the neighboring state. So Batken here is a good example of one of these, a village that grew rapidly in the 1970s with the forced resettlement of mountain populations and the arrival of new sources of irrigation with the building of um, a pump station and uh, a reservoir. For those who've read James Scott, we can recognise this as a place transformed by the organising ambition of the high modernist state. But rather than a simple story of the seeing state here transforming landscapes in its image, what we have, in fact, is a much more complex story of local spatial appropriations. Industrial growth, in-migration, and the increase in land under cultivation from the 1940s led to informal exchanges of territory between neighbouring collective farms to consolidate disparate land holdings and pastures, and sometimes even between individual private farmers. In this process, the administrative boundaries that existed on paper in the 1920s 
not with no physical correlate on landscapes that were deemed barren and economically unproductive, were largely ignored in daily life. Maps needed to be rewritten to take into, this spa into account this spatial transformation. Indeed, when a 1949 parity commission was established to determine the rightful boundaries between Kyrgyz and Tajik Soviet Socialist Republics, it noted that maps from a decade earlier bore little correspondence to the de facto distribution of land between collective farms here. And I quote here from the 1949 Parity Commission. In order to prevent potential land conflicts and misunderstandings in the use of unallocated lands, it re uh, reported, we consider it imperative in the near future to clarify the inter-republican boundaries between the Tajik Soviet Socialist Republic and the Kyrgyz Soviet Socialist Republic. Considering that the borders shown on the maps published in 1938 to 40 do not reflect the actual location of both republics. As a result of which, 14 collective farms belonging to Batken district of the Kyrgyz SSR have found themselves within the borders of the Tajik SSR, including settlements belonging to eight of these collectives. End of quote. As Christine Bixell has noted, such commissions typically recommended adjusting the Republican borders to fit current de facto land use, in the term. Rather than treating the original 1924-27 delimitation as authoritative, such an approach appears to have privileged more sedentary modes of life, because it's easier to tell that land is being used productively when it's being cultivated rather than grazed. It also served to reinforce a working assumption that land that is being used by ethnic Kyrgyz members of a Kyrgyz collective farm de facto belongs to the Kyrgyz Soviet Socialist Republic, and vice versa for ethnic Tajiks. The Parity Commission's readiness to adjust the borders according to existing Kalpoz land use and the ethnic distribution of populations um, meant that such border reassessments, far from resolving contention over unallocated lands as they were intended to do, tended rather to replicate uncertainty. To this day, the major obstacle slowing the delimitation of the Kyrgyz-Tajik border, and, and um, only about half of the actual boundary between the two states has been agreed to this day, is disagreement over which acts, uh, which normative acts ratified in one Union Republic but not the other, and which maps should be taken as the authoritative basis for discussion. In practice, these commission's recommendations never gained juridical force and were largely ignored in practice. Tajik or Kyrgyz border dwellers during Soviet times were still <coughs> citizens of the same Soviet state. <coughs> Public transport and road infrastructure knitted republics together. Indeed, as recently as 2008, the Pazik uh, bus, oh, I'll come back to that now, um, that um, has been running the route since the 1970s, crossed the unmarked Kyrgyz-Tajik border no fewer than six times, linking villages on either side of it into a shared regional economy, defined less by the bounds of the state than the lie of the Isvara River and the location of regional markets. I'll go back to this map that I um, skirted over because I think it gives a good sense, firstly, of the degree to which um, this is an irrigation-dependent region and therefore um, the sort of grey, um, brown-grey uh, uh, mountainous area in the background, which is largely unirrigated, um, was effectively less left undetermined. And it's only the process of establishing um, 
um, a reservoir here and canal infrastructure that allowed this whole region to be irrigated that suddenly rendered this, this geographical indeterminacy into a, into, into a problem. Um, and you can see here again the white lines, perhaps not very clear here, are the, are the international boundaries between um, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And the bus that used to run down to Aksai over here would cross back and forth between this border multiple times on its, on its journey. What persisted, however, was a residual sense that borders couldn't be relied upon, that you might lose your mountains, as Halil put it, with regards to Charku village. Arslanata, I'll show him here, was in his late 70s when I interviewed him in 2010 about his experience of working for several decades as a mine worker and union leader in the nearby mining town of Shurab, Arslanata had moved Shura several years earlier after life in a town where irrigation water no longer reached became too hard to sustain. Today he lives right on the edge of a village, Kuktash, at the side of the new bypass road, on land that remains disputed after exchanges of land between collective farms dating back to the 1970s. After drinking tea and chatting, Arslan showed me the outhouse that had, he claimed, been destroyed by people from Charku who insisted that it was illegally built on the territory of Tajikistan. That's his house and that's his outhouse, um, about 70 metres apart. When we got talking to his about his period of mine work in Shura, he turned back to the question of historical primacy, recalling the land exchanges that meant that the Shurab mine workings, which traversed Soviet Republican boundaries several kilometres to our north, ended up as part of the Tajik Soviet Republic. Here's our son, and he's uh, being interjected here by his daughter-in-law, Elmira, who was joining in the conversation. When we first moved there to Shurab in 1939, there was no Shurab to speak of. It was called Shorsu, he said. Elmira interjecting. It had a Kyrgyz name, Arslan. It belonged to the Kyrgyz Soviet Republic. The Kyrgyz had always been there, looking after their animals. They used to call it Buravoy Kishlak. But then when the Soviet power came, they started to call it Shorsu. And then it went over to the Tajiks. Elmira interjecting. The Kyrgyz gave it as a loan for 19 years. And they changed the name to Shorob, you see, to make it Tajik. It went over to the Tajiks, but the people living there were Kyrgyz. The Tajiks didn't have their own mine, not an underground mine. The Kyrgyz had lots of mines at that time. Sulukta, Janyaruk, Kuvukir. So it was given to the Tajiks, first of all as a loan, and then in Khrushchev's time, it was given to them permanently. In 1957, no, in 1960-something or other, it was to mark the 40th anniversary of the formation of the Tajik Soviet Socialist Republic. At this point, Arslan, who'd been talking to me in Kyrgyz, switched into Russian, which here indexes a more, suddenly a more formal language, a more formal <coughs> rhetoric, and, and pretended to read out a decree to give the source of coal of the Shurab mine workings to the Tajik SSR. It was all official. It was an order from the Supreme Soviet. I remember reading about it in Pravda newspaper then. You can still find that article somewhere. Now, my concern here is not with the validity or historical accuracy of Arslanata's re reading of this particular historical exchange, nor to suggest that this kind of narrative of ethnic spatial injustice is the only discourse about Kyrgyz-Tajik relations that figures in local conversation. 
It's rather that memories of a relatively recent past, of late Soviet land exchanges that continued right up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, often substantiate particular grievances into the present. The niggling sense, as we saw also with the Tajik elder Khalil, that borders are not where they used to be and not where they should be. The first part of my argument then is that rather than a singular moment of Stalinist divide and rule as it's often portrayed, the national territorial delimitation of 1924 to 27 should be seen as the first iteration of an ongoing story of 20th century border moving in rural Central Asia, which has continued now beyond the Soviet Union's collapse. It's in this context, I think, that we need to understand local anxieties today at this border over territorial integrity and the threat of so-called creeping migration, in which the border is understood to move at the point that a citizen of the neighbouring state buys a house from a citizen um, of, of, of the other state. So if um, a citizen of Tajikistan buys a house belonging to a citizen of Kyrgyzstan, this is deemed the border itself is seen to move in that act. Um, more commonly, this involves citizens of Tajikistan buying houses belonging to citizens of Kyrgyzstan. There is an unambiguous political economy to these land exchanges. The Tajik village communities along the Isfara Valley are some of the most densely populated of any agriculturally dependent region of Central Asia. The size of land plots here and the lack of available space for new building means that people like Arslanata living in areas that are disputed and you can see the region behind his outhouse here is, is not constructed on, and this is because it's kind of formally disputed territory. And yet immediately beyond that, you have, um, as, as Google Earth, great for these things, shows an incredibly densely populated um, area. This at the same scale is the, near, the nearest um, uh, Kyrgyz village, and you can see the difference in terms of the density of, of population, and this is because of the land pressure on the Tajik side of the, um, of the border here. So the size of land plots uh, here and the lack of available space for new building means that people like Arslan living in areas that are disputed will often informally sell their home to citizens of neighbouring Tajikistan at a dramatically inflated rate, using the income gained then to move to the comparatively more fertile and land-rich Chui Valley uh, in northern Kyrgyzstan. And I won't go into this here, but there's been a, a huge sort of political discourse around um, the threat of creeping migration, that this is a sort of, that there's this progressive loss of territory and of territorial integrity through these everyday acts of buying and selling um, houses. It's also in this context that we need to understand the concern with building bypass roads as a means of establishing so-called transport independence and halting the prospective encroachment of the border. As I've suggested, public transport had a critical role in effectively knitting constituent union republics together. Just as border <coughs> markets pictured here, factories and tea houses did. In fact, in this region, there are a whole series of little markets that are, that are put up sort of right, up at, right at the border in which accept um, both currencies, Kyrgyz and Tajik. Borderland buses also serve to elicit a distinctive space of social coexistence. If the social relations associated with the bazaar are typically fleeting, pragmatic, and occasionally shot through with accusations of cunning or duplicity, then the social space of public transport, gendered as it is, 
was typically characterized by quite distinct local practices of mutual recognition and respect, or what my interlocutors would often gloss as unthamak, harmonious getting along. On the Pazik bus that we saw, um, that used to run the route from Batken to Aksai, any seated female, for instance, might be passed a small infant to care for during the two and a half hour ride. Any male under the age of 30 might be called upon to help lift boxes or flagons of milk. The elderly were always found seats nearer the front of the bus, obviously, uh, and, and, and those obviously marked out as outsiders by speech or dress, including me initially, might be given an improvised wooden bench to sit on between the main rows of seats. On this route, each stop entailed a careful process of reseating to ensure that those more deserving or more elderly were always found a seat. And people often took public transport as an example of untamaktu, of, of, of harmonious uh, um, uh, relations across this border. And I should say, I, I haven't mentioned it already, but, but Kyrgyz and Tajik are mutually indistinguishable languages. Um, one is Persian, one is Turkic. Historically, Russian here served as a kind of informal lingua franca, but increasingly that, that young people don't speak Russian here. So um, these everyday sort of habitual practices of sharing and of, and of giving up your seat to somebody in the bus are often cited as, as examples of how, um, despite uh, not having a common language, there are these sort of practices of exchange and interaction. Perhaps more importantly, public transport had served to create a de facto space of relatively free movement in a region that was elsewhere characterized by the increasing closure of international borders through border posts and barbed wire fencing. This was often to me to often explain to me through the pragmatism of codependence. If they close their border, they know that we will close ours. If we block the road, then upstream they can block the water flow in the Isfara River, and then we'd all be trapped in. This interdependence is particularly important as any glance at a map of the region, at least until 2009, makes clear. And this is a map of the sort of the road connections. And you can see here that the main roads east-west in South Kyrgyzstan necessarily traverse the territory of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And, and it's also true that if you want to get from Varoh to Isfara, which intriguingly isn't marked, this is a kind of classic map that ignores its, 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 its geographical neighbours. Um, but Isfara is about here. And if you want to get from, Is from Varoh to Isfara, you have to travel through the territory of, of, of Kyrgyzstan. So there's been this transport interdependence. Um, but in 2008, Kyrgyzstan began construction on a new road between Batken and Lelek. So Batken, um, Lelek region over here, Batken here, but which would bypass this region. That's, this is the, the, the kind of the critical bypass that we're talking about around here. Um, that would bypass this region and, and allow citizens of Kyrgyzstan to travel between the, the southern districts of the country without entering the crossing through Tajik territory. The stretch of bypass that would enable this to happen, less than 30 kilometres in length, was built by the European Union that put up the initial funding for it, and that's another whole story about the sort of um, Europe's involvement in, in the governance of borders in Central Asia. Um, it was built as a development initiative, one that would cut down journey times, increase opportunities for local movement, and obviate the need for timely and frustrating border crossings where the road previously dipped in and out of Tajikistan. As the accompanying documentation made clear, the primary motivation for the diversion arose from, quote, the need to bypass Uzbek and Tajik territory, thereby freeing goods traffic and passengers from border tolls and delays. This would reduce poverty, it was claimed, by, quote, boosting the local and national economy, 
and then in brackets, and the regional economy, although this is of less direct importance to the Kyrgyz Republic. So this was clearly a national uh, project. On the surface, this seemed a straightforward enough proposition. The smooth tarmac bypass road, World Bank funded and built by Chinese construction workers, locally rumoured to be orphans who had to take on this terribly demanding and low-paid work as a condition of full citizenship, did indeed cut down journey times between Batken and Aksai. If in 2004 it took the 30-year-old Pazik bus two and a half hours or more to reach Aksai from Batken, the private Mercedes minibus with which it was now replaced could make the journey along the newly tarmacked road almost an hour more quickly. When I visited Aksai in January 2010, shortly after the new bypass had been opened, many of those who had to travel regularly to the administrative uh, centre for work or for, for business were happy that the then President Bakiev had, as I was often told, given us a road. And yet for all of its enchantment of speed and economic connectivity, the road also had another kind of purpose and other kinds of effect. As the 2009 Resettlement Action Plan noted in its discussion of the rationale for the bypass, the road also served to mark a de facto border between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan in a region of unmarked and contested territory that had been the subject to informal local acts of land appropriation. I quote, although the proposed road does not run directly along the border at any point, the action plan noted, it will serve to define the nearby border into the future and reduce the risk of encroachment. Fixing a road, in other words, has also been a material means to fix the border and mark the limits of the state. This is so in a double sense. On the one hand, it acts as a material marker on the landscape, asserting a claim in the absence of other indicators in the large stretches of waterless adr or mountainside that it crosses of where one state begins and the other ends. This marker function is heightened by the fact that the road is now used by Kyrgyz border guards to patrol the craggy mountains and pastures that rise sharply to its south, checking for illegal crossing, but also for the illicit grazing of animals or collecting of firewood. On the other hand, what the road also serves in practice to do is to channel Kyrgyz traffic along one route and Tajik traffic along another. Tajiks who need to get from the enclave of Varuch, which borders Aksai, to the nearby market in Charku, for instance, have no need to take this route, as it now bypasses Charku entirely. In the space of a few years, in other words, a route that was effectively shared, with minibuses accept accepting both Kyrgyz and Tajik currency, dipping in and out of one state and into the next, has been effectively nationalised, in the sense that citizens of neighbouring states increasingly use different roads, different routes, and different minibuses to get to different markets using different currencies. And I think it's no coincidence that the new, the new, um, this is the, the asphalt, is often just spoken of locally as the, uh, as the Kyrgyz Jol, the Kyrgyz Road. Um, so it's having this sort of national function. One of the consequences of this nationalising of space was visible in January 2010, when I returned to Aksai for the first time after the opening of the new bypass. 27-year-old Jengish, uh, here with his niece, who, for whom he's the primary caregiver, um, with whose family I'd lived during pe previous periods of fieldwork, took me on a foot tour of the new road, which began several kilometres north of his village. The road was beautiful, Jengish said. The Chinese really knew how to make good roads. But the road had also created headaches. 
Young Tajik boys from Charku would climb the rocks overlooking the road, he told me, and throw stones at cars passing along its tarmac surface, or at the border guards who patrol it here. This action, which in another context might just have been read as a sign of boredom or youthful fooling around, was interpreted by Jenish as a sign of outright hostility towards the predominantly Kyrgyz drivers who now used the road. But how do they know which cars are which, I asked. They can tell from the number plate, Jenish explained. And anyway, he said, why would any Tajik people take this road? It only leads to Batken. The frustration of the Charkur villages, he explained, was that the road effectively deprived the village of a major source of livelihood. You've seen how tightly packed in they are, he said. No land, just mountains on all sides. Young boys regularly used to collect wood, uh, um, firewood on the hills on the far side of the road, as well as mumio, a net-like substance found in mountain <coughs> caves that could be sold for markets in Russia. Although everyone knew that this was Kyrgyz land, until the road came along here, everyone here could search for firewood as they liked. No one knew or really cared, Jenish explained, but now they have to have their documents checked each time they want to cross over to the hills for wood. And usually that means they have to bribe the local head of the border troops if they wanted to be left in peace. By 2013, as I learned from another journey with Jenish, this bypass had fostered another set of unpredictable consequences detours upon detours to avoid the neighbouring state. On the last day of August, we were making our way to Batken from Jenish's home in Aksai to attend the Independence Day celebrations in town and to buy a school uniform for his brother's daughter. Jenish had learned to drive earlier in the year after his brother, who'd been working in Russia for several years, um, had driven a 20-year-old Lada car the 4,500 kilometres to Batken from St. Petersburg, where he worked. This was the first time that Jenish was able to give me a ride in his own car, and we both remarked on the economic possibilities that this afforded. The road connecting Aksai with the new asphalt route to Batken passed through one of the stretches of chessboard border here, as it's called, that is characteristic of this region. Private land plots bordering the road tap back and forth between the jurisdiction of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Reaching the bypass entailed crossing through the village of Hojailo, <coughs> located in Tajikistan, the same place that, that Halil had commented about as having lost its mountains. It then involved crossing back into Kyrgyzstan again, a little further up the road. As we approached Hojailo from Aksai, Jenish suddenly turned to me and said, let me show you another route. I was surprised at his comment, since to my knowledge, there was only one route for cars to leave Aksai village. I'll show you the, the map so that we can get oriented here. So um, Aksai is, is here, and to reach, the, um, to reach the bypass, we need to cross through this uh, um, stretch of Tajikistan in order to join the bypass road about here. Private, uh, uh, so as we approached Hojailo, Jenish suddenly turned and said, let me show you another route. I was surprised since, to my knowledge, there was only one route a fact indeed that had been the source of some local grievance and considerable comment by nationalist politicians in Bishkek, eager to point out the dangerous consequences of Batken's peninsularity. Jenish steered to the right, taking us over a makeshift bridge over the Isfara River, past the pump station that channeled water from the river into a large irrigation canal. Um, we carried on along a narrow unmarked track that ran the length of this irrigation canal here eventually joining the asphalt route five or six kilometres further up, and you can see where the sort of the, the improvised extra road 
joins the, the official bypass road. As we cross this unmarked, unpaved road on the side of the canal, a detour to re reach a detour effectively, I asked Janish about this makeshift and obviously newly constructed road. It had always existed as a footpath, Janish told me, for people going up to the canal or the pump station. But in recent months, people from Aksai had started to drive along it, thus avoiding crossing through Hojailo village. This route was considerably longer and less smooth, but said Janish, now we don't have to leave the territory of Kyrgyzstan. He then switched into Russian, with studied formality saying to me, welcome to the independent Kyrgyz road. I was struck by his comment, since this was not something that Jenish was usually particularly preoccupied with. Indeed, if anything, Jenish prided himself on maintaining a critical distance from his rather outspoken uncle, whom he considered a nationalist. When I'd stayed with Jenish and his family in Aksai on previous occasions, we always went to the Dusky shop just across the border to buy chewing gum for his niece, or bread when he ran out, ran out at home. Jenish knew enough Tajik to, sh to, to shop, and maintained friendly relations with the shopkeeper. She, in turn, didn't say a word when Jenish paid in Kyrgyz currency rather than in Tajik Somoni. The shop and the border, after all, were less than 100 metres from his home. There were many other examples over nearly a decade of visiting Jenish and his family when we moved across the border without giving it a second thought. His own family had bought a land plot in Bakai, one of the areas identified as vulnerable to creeping migration. When Jenish's mother needed medical attention, Jenish would take her to Izabul Loaka, a Tajik who trained in Dushanbe and who lived in one of the new mahalas at the edge of Varuch. And yet here was Jenish studiously avoiding crossing through Hojailo village so as to stay on Kyrgyzstan territory. We no longer take the Isfara minibus, Jenish told me, referring to the bus that, that, that travels along the, the, the Tajik section of this road. Even though, as he said, they, the people from Varuk, still, still felt able to buy petrol from Aksai. There's no Umtamak between us anymore, he said. The reasons for the strained relation in the summer of 2013 reveal much about the contention surrounding new infrastructures in a context of disputed territory and the ambiguous promise of bypass roads. In April 2013, work had begun on a Kyrgyzstan government-funded detour road that would start in Aksai, this time a 17-kilometre unpaved road around Varoch, so that herders from Aksai and villages to the north could take their animals to pasture without having to cross into Tajik territory. Official accounts of this new road-building initiative give divergent versions of exactly where and by whom the road had been, uh, uh, sorry, but by, by whom the route of this new road had been agreed. Some reports asserted that the road had been on the plans of the Ministry of Transport and been agreed with officials from Tajikistan. Others suggest that the decision to devote significant government funds to this project had been taken hastily and without wide consultation, following an escalation of violence earlier in the year. Others still suggested that pressure had come from Aksai villagers themselves, concerned that new restrictions limiting pasture use by non-citizens, and thus depriving people from Varuch of their former grazing lands was leading to retaliation from Varuch men at the point that Aksai herders returned through Varuch with their flocks. Either way, the people of Varuch appear not to have been alerted of the plan to build the road from Aksai to the pastures 
as a parallel route to the one running through Varroch itself. According to media reports, elders from Varroch initially approached the construction workers, asking them to halt building work on disputed territory. Five days later, after their requests were ignored, they put a violent end to the construction by deliberately damaging excavation equipment, smashing windows on a digger loaned for the operation, and apparently leaving two tractor drivers hospitalised. The local dispute quickly escalated into a significant intercommunal conflict, involving several hundred people from Varroch and Aksai at the site of the conflict, and, and, and with, resulting in a contingent of 150 special forces police, or Monovtsi, sent from Bat Ken to the, to, to the main uh, Kyrgyzstan-Tajikistan crossroad at the entrance of the Varroch enclave. Jayish showed me photographs that we had taken on that day, in which two lines of armed soldiers stood opposite each other 20, 20 metres or so apart near the friendship shop. In retaliation at this effective blockade of Varukh, residents of the Tajik village of Hojailo, further along the same road and the one that now Jenish wanted to avoid, blocked the passage of Kyrgyz drivers returning to Aksai from Batken and beyond. As with the stone throwing incidents on the 2008 bypass road, the car's number plate served here as the marker of inclusion or exclusion in this local standoff. A Kyrgyz number plate and the car would be stopped in Hojailo and refused passage. A Tajik number plate and it would be denied passage out of Varukh at the point that the road entered Kyrgyzstan. So you very soon had a build-up of cars on, on two stretches of this road. In April, at the height of this conflict, Jenish had found himself caught up in this event. He called it a road conflict, Joltalash even though his car, like many that had been driven back from Russia, had Russian number plates rather than Kyrgyz ones. And there's a whole other story of, of uh, um, international labor migration here, which I won't go into. The day after he had taken photos of the special forces police grouped at the border, he had been attending a family gathering in Bakai with his mother and niece, a mile or so from Aksai. As he drove through one of the Varukh Mahalas on his way home, that's of one of the Varukh neighborhoods, a group of young men threw stones at the, at the back of his car, smashing the window and leaving his mother in a state of shock. For Jenish, this experience was transformative and politicizing. Indeed, his first reaction after telling the local police officer, who he remonstrated could do nothing because the vandalism had happened on Tajik territory, was to post pictures of this incident on Facebook so that friends could alert local journalists. In fact, this is how I first heard of the event. So there's this kind of anticipation of conflict, um, I, I think, and, and a tendency to turn small incidents into uh, uh, manifestations of, 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 kind of growing inter-ethnic antagonism. Over the next several days, the conflict escalated to draw in other villages in the region. The local Batken administration issued a ban on Tajik citizens selling at the local Samarkandek Bazaar the nearest market uh, on the Kyrgyzstan side of the border. Although the reason officially given was the damaging effect of poor quality Tajik goods, which did not beat epidemic and sanitary criteria, the move was locally understood to be a direct result of the halting of the road construction. Tajik authorities retaliated in turn by banning Kyrgyzstani citizens from trading at the market in Charku, so on the Tajik side of the border. The prospective detour road then had elicited a whole chain of material politics, new ways of marking limits in the absence of a, def of definitive territorial of, of a definite territorial boundary. 
But why had the prospect of a 17-kilometre dirt road caused such contention in Farrakh? And what might its construction teach us about the work of rebordering in contemporary Central Asia? So I'm reaching my conclusions here. At the simplest level, the dispute over the building of the new road turned on the location of the prospective bypass, and therefore its legality. Was it, as Kyrgyz officials insisted, being built 500 metres inside the territory of Kyrgyzstan, and therefore none of the neighbouring state's business? Or, as Varok officials complained, was the road actually being constructed on land that was officially undetermined, and therefore in contravention of an intergovernmental agreement, prohibiting new construction on disputed territory? Disagreements over the status of this territory hung on precisely the questions that had stalled successive parity commissions. What is the base map for discussing the location of borders? Which normative acts agreed in one Soviet Republic but not the other are to be considered authoritative in the absence of an arbitrating supreme Soviet? This was many of the border disputes that have come to feature in Central Asian news <coughs> reports with increasing frequency in recent years, a story of contested territory. But this fact alone, I suggest, can't explain the passion that attached to the road construction. For people in Varug, the road seemed to signal something more than that, an active process of entrapment, a claim upon territory that was lived as shared, and many would claim here that was historically theirs, even if juridically it was now in Kyrgyzstan. There are two clues that can help us to unpack this. The first come in the comments made by a Tajik elder to a visiting journalist at the height of the conflict. This road will turn us into an enclave, he said. The comment is striking because Varum is formally already an enclave and has been so since 1991, when Soviet Republican borders were transformed into international boundaries. From the point of view of people living here, however, this juridical fact had little popular salience for most of the independence period. People from Varum could get to friends and markets unhindered, in striking contrast to Tajikistan's border with Uzbekistan, there was no barbed wire here, and in previous years, there had been relatively few obstacles to cross-border movement. More importantly, people from Varukh, a district that had no grazing lands of its own, could freely reach the pastures that surrounded it, technically in Kyrgyzstan, but unmarked and largely unpoliced. Indeed, it was the very ambiguity in territory the fact that the border had never conclusively been demarcated here, that allowed a kind of informal untermach to take hold. A second clue comes from a, co from a comment made to me by Jenish's mother, when I asked her why people from Varukh were so opposed to the new road. Her response, quick as lightning, was, because we'll no longer be dependent on them. In the past, extensive infrastructural interdependence for drinking and irrigation water for access to the outside world and so on, acted as a kind of block on local escalations of conflict, even though these had existed in the past. As I was often told, you don't spit in the well when you drink from it. Things might be strained here, but we don't need anyone to teach us tolerance. We've, been, we've figured out um, here that we need to get along. That was a recurrent local discourse. What the prospective bypass road indexed then was simultaneously a connection and a barrier one that would formally allow this route to be policed, taxes collected for, for pasture use, and proper interstate relations to be maintained, but which, from the perspective, perspective of the people of Varukh, signalled an escalation of force, the intrusion of the state into daily life, even if it didn't run along the line of the border, 
the new road would act as a kind of material, symbolic marker of stately limits, a tool of de facto delimitation, just as the bypass road around Chaku had become. It's in this sense that experientially the road would turn Varuk into an, en into an enclave for the first time. This story has implications too for the growing debates about sources of transboundary conflict in Central Asia and the vast resources that are now being poured into so-called preventive development. In recent years along the Kyrgyzstan-Tajikistan boundary, two of the paradigmatic spaces of social interaction across ethnic and international boundaries, public transport and the bazaar, have become increasingly ethnically marked, in part through the well-intentioned activities of infrastructure development aimed, in the World Bank's words, at reducing poverty and removing territorial ambiguity. Perhaps more consequentially, it also means that incentives to find workable cross-border solutions to issues of acute land and pasture shortage here are undermined. The presence of the road and the policing of the border that it facilitates doesn't remove the reasons for illegal appropriation of water and firewood <coughs> or illegal use of grazing lands, even though it enables such activities to be more vigorously policed and, punishment, uh, and punished. Recent events in the Isra Valley also have implications, I think, for how we think about roads and borders and how we might hold the two together to question the material politics of each. Anthropological studies of infrastructure have flourished in recent years, highlighting their centrality to the articulation of state space, expressions of international connectivity, and particular visions of socialist and capitalist modernity. Ethnographic studies of road building, road movement, and roadside trade reveal the entanglements of the social and political and the effective investment that is integral to the realization of monumental construction projects, as well as the unexpected ways that such projects can be appropriated and deployed. Often, however, the connective function of roads has been assumed rather than interrogated. Here I want to ask what else roads do and have sought to pose as an empirical question how and why they can be objects that are as much feared as desired. Indeed, it's this simultaneity, I think, that is significant. Roads enchant through the promises of mobility and modernity, but they can also mark limits and serve materially to cut relations by channeling different groups of people along different paths. In the absence of juridical agreement over where the line of the border lies, the road here has come to, to serve the work of de facto delimitation. And this, I think, I've lost my last page. They've got printed. <laughs> so I'll do an improvised uh, conclusion. But, but this, I think, has, has real significance for how we think about the work of bordering. I think this tendency to take the sort of monumental inscriptions of border as paradigmatic of border spaces and how we think about them can, um, can, can really blind us to the multiple spaces in which bordering happens, including here, I think, the building of new road infrastructures. Thank you.